after listening to those testimonies. Am I wired? Can you hear me? All right. After listening to those testimonies, I was thinking of a story I'd read years ago of this church where every Sunday night they would open it up for testimonies. And there was a young gal who was always sitting somewhere in the back and she'd be shifting uneasily. And one day the pastor said to her, you know, you should tell your story too. She said, you know, pastor, when I listen to all these dramatic stories being told, my conversion was so ordinary, nothing dramatic about it, it'll just be anticlimactic. And he said to her, you know, every conversion is dramatic. Every testimony is dramatic. You should be willing to tell your story. So the next Sunday, she came and sat in the front pew. And just as she was about to jump up, a young guy went up to the microphone. And he said, for me, it began as the son of a double agent in Moscow. <laughs> and she decided to go back to the back pew. She said, I'll wait till next Sunday. After listening to the stories, I feel a little bit like I should go back to the end of the table and wait till the next generous giving conference. Oh, all these amazing uh, testimonials to what God has done, but that's you know, people who say they don't believe in miracles, they should see changed lives. The greatest miracle you ever see is in a changed heart. It is easier to stone, to take uh, water into wine than to change a stony heart into a heart that is so drawn to the Savior and willing to live for him and serve him. So thank you so much for all your beautiful stories. Uh, it's really a blessing to come and listen all that God is doing. And thank you for having me here. It's a large crowd, and if all of you are here for the same purpose, uh, the world will be very different as you respond to what God prompts you to do. I'm always honored to stand before a lectern or a pulpit or a podium whenever I'm asked to defend the claims of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> because the more I listen to all that's going on around the globe, and the more I see what is happening, I ask myself the question, when did we take these wrong turns? We didn't just arrive at today in the midst of political and cultural chaos. There was a path to all of this. My colleague, uh, Oz Guinness, who's a social theorist and a social analyst, made an astounding statement to an audience recently. He said, this president did not create the crisis. He said, the crisis created this president. What is the crisis he's talking about? What is it people are really looking for? Why are they willing to just put their hands up and resist so much that they have been through that they say, enough. We have just launched an institute that's been a dream for me for many years, an apologetics institute in Atlanta. It took us about two years of generating the funds for it. And I remember sitting in front of a Chinese businessman. I think he's the number one businessman in Singapore. And when he was giving his commitment to me, here's what he said. He said, Ravi, if you were raising this to build an apologetics institute in Singapore, I wouldn't want any part of it. He said, we in Singapore have the highest number of megachurches per capita anywhere in the world. 
He said, but you're building it in America. And America is in a mess. It's in a mess. And I want to help you get that mission accomplished in a country that is sliding down at such a high pace. What has happened to us as a people? How did we become so uncivil? When did illegality become a badge of honor on your chest? How do we justify mocking truth and celebrating lies? How did we come to a point where our academies are so bereft of honor and dignity and civility and producing students who are absolute relativists and a media that is not committed to truth, dignity, and values. How did all this happen? It never happens overnight. It always begins with a process where somebody somewhere is daring enough to clench his or her fist at God. Always begins that way. When you think of the fact that in the Garden of Eden, there was only one law of prohibition, one. Astounding that the Lord of the universe in creating this world could give only one prohibition. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in the day you do that, you're gonna die. See, everything was good. Everything was good. But it was not good for man to be alone. And then he made him helpmate and a partner. And then he said this, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in the day that you do that, you're gonna die. And the enemy of our souls came and said that taunting thing, don't believe that. In the day you do it, you will be as God knowing good and evil. What was he saying? A deadly half-truth. You can play God. You can be the definer of good and evil. That's why it was the only prohibition. Don't play God. Don't become the definer of good and evil. And in the day we started to define good and evil, we need law upon law upon law till we need thousands of pages just for our healthcare laws. You get onto an aircraft and they tell you do not touch, tamper, disable, or destroy the smoke detector. Why do you need four prohibitions? <laughs> Why can't you just say don't mess with that thing out there? <laughs> because if you go into a courtroom, a man can say I touched it, but I didn't tamper with it. I disabled, but I didn't touch it. So you need every word to keep it from dying the death of a thousand qualifications. Life has become terribly confusing. And when I think of men and women like you, with your busy lives, who come for a conference such as this, to find out how you can multiply what God has given you to make this a better place, I commend you for it. And then there on me, says the Lord, I will also honor. And he said that in the trust of provisions. If you honor me with all of that, I also will honor you. I want to talk a little bit about history, where it's going, what we are facing.
and what kind of a response it is going to take. In my studies at Cambridge, one of my favorite persons a brief time there studied the romantic writer Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And Coleridge said this, if men could only learn from history, what lessons it might teach us. But passion and party blind our eyes, and the light which experience gives us is a lantern on the stern which shines only on the waves behind us. And the light which experience gives us is the lantern on the stern which only shines on the waves behind us. He who refuses to learn from history, said Santiana, is forced to repeat its mistakes. Someone else said history is nothing more than a collection of innumerable biographies. But history, when you think about it, is actually his story written in your heart, lived out one at a time. How you respond to him, how you live for him, how you respond to the calling that he has placed upon your life and mine. And ladies and gentlemen, we are living in a time when we desperately need to find out what God's will is for you and for me. But I go back and look at the time of Rome 2,000 years ago, and here's what one writer said about Rome. It would be unsavory to describe how far the worship of indecency was carried, how public morals were corrupted by the mimic and imitate representations of everything that was vile, and even by the pandering of a corrupt art, the personation of gods, oracles, divinations, dreams, astrology, magic, necromancy, and all contributed to the general decay. It has been rightly said that the idea of conscience as we understand it was destroyed by Rome in heathenism. Absolute right did not exist. Might was right. The social relations exhibited, if possible, uh, if possible even deeper corruption. The sanctity of marriage had ceased. Female dissipation and the general dissoluteness led at last to an almost entire cessation of marriage. Abortion and the exposure and murder of the newly born children were common and tolerated. Unnatural vices, which even the greatest philosophers practiced, if not advocated, attained proportions which defy description. That was Rome. Such indecency. That was one of the reasons the apostle Paul said, I have to get there. I have to get to Rome. How did the early church conquer the known world of their time. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that so that you and I can learn from history and see what the early church did to make a difference in our world. The passage I read for you comes to me from Acts chapter seven. Stephen is about to be martyred and here's what he says. The most high does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resisted the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open 
and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul was there giving approval to his death. Amazing. The first martyr who radiates the presence of God and a man who is standing watching over the clothes of those who are stoning him hadn't the faintest clue that he was one day going to be writing one third of the New Testament. He had no idea that this was the man who was going to change history. Until this very day, his mark remains. In fact, it's gonna be my privilege in a few weeks to be in Rome to speak on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation to commemorate all that has taken place beginning from the time of the Apostle Paul, sola fide, sola scriptura, sola gracias. By faith alone, by grace alone, and the scriptures alone. How did the church bring this about? How did they conquer the known world of their time when Rome was so rotten and there was such hatred, ethnicity, and all of that reigned during that time? How did it happen? I look at three simple truths and I'll stick to my time and I'll move as the time moves along as well here. The first is this. They saw the finger of God in all of history and Christ as its central figure. They saw the finger of God in all of history and Christ as its central figure. It was Jesus who interpreted all of history for them. Without him, history was incomprehensible. With him, it all began to make sense. You see, if you look at the leading philosophies of the last few years, it goes like this. To the existentialist, he lives with the now. Existentialism focuses on your will and the moment and passion. You will to find meaning against all odds and you do it now in your own way. You lift yourself up by your own volitional bootstraps. That's what the existentialist believes. Live for the moment, live for the now, believe in your will against all odds. You fly in the face of despair and chart out some kind of meaning for yourself. The existentialist lives for the now. The utopianist, Karl Marx and others, pie in the sky by and by when I die. They are futuristic. Pie in the sky by and by when I die. And so you see the Marxist philosophy, the communist philosophy. When Malcolm Muggeridge was a young man, he was a communist in his heart. He went to Russia to do a story on Stalin. He came back thoroughly changed from what Marxism was all about and communism was all about. All these promises, he said, for the future, while they're murdering and slaughtering their own people by the millions. A week ago, my wife and I were having lunch with a former KGB agent, Jack Barsky, who wrote, who wrote the book called Deep Undercover. He brought his Jamaican wife with him, and we were having lunch in Atlanta to listen to his story. 
how he was living in America, spying on America, taking its secrets and passing it on. And in an amazing way, he was converted to Jesus Christ. He now tells his story. And he was telling me over lunch, he said, Ravi, I want you to know, so deep was this philosophy ingrained in me that when I was living in America and saw all of the comforts and all of the economic thriving, I still refused to believe that it was real. I kept reminding myself that this is the lie and my Marxist ideology is what is really the truth. They're so deeply entrenched from the time they are children and it's ingrained within them. He said, I'd be listening to you on the radio and then I would hear things like this. There is no basis for moral authority without a transcendent point of reference. He said, I keep listening to that. There's no absolute without God. He said, and as I was listening to those messages, I said to myself, he's right. Because all the dirty, filthy, rotten things I did, he said, I justified by virtue of my profession. But all along I was living with this utterly depraved heart, justifying it at all costs. Pie in the sky, by and by when I die. Futuristic, the existentialist for the now, the utopianist for the future. The Hebrew lived for the past. Tradition, tradition, tradition. How do you build your life as tenuous as a fiddler on the roof? Tradition, tradition, tradition. Existentialist, utopianist, traditionalist. Jesus Christ, when he rose again from the dead, was walking on the Emmaus Road. And the two boys walking with him were disciples. And they look at him and say, who are you? He looks at them and says, why are you guys so despondent? And they say the most ironic statement, are you the only one in Israel who doesn't know what's happened? <laughs> when he was only the only one in Israel who did know what had happened. <laughs> but imagine, they get the greatest history lesson. If there is a passage in scripture for which I would like to have received it firsthand, this would be it to walk along the author of history and have him unpack everything for you. They were so overwhelmed, they say to him, we'll buy you dinner <laughs> if you will stay the night. And after all of that exposition of history, this is incredible to me. After all of that history lesson, when he took a piece of bread and broke it, So there's only one other time we've seen that done. As often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, now you proclaim the Lord's death in the past until he come in the future. Amazing panoramic view of history. He fuses every moment with meaning. You and I are intended to live in the now meaningfully for him. This is our time. This is our moment. This is the time to raise our families. This is the time to give. This is the time to celebrate. You know, Winston Churchill was once asked by his a corporal, Mr. Churchill, have I ever told you about my grandchildren? 
Churchill said no, and I want you to know how much I appreciate it. <laughs> but since I'm not Churchill, I'd like to tell you about my grandson. He's five years old, He's Jew. his name is Jude. This last Easter, he led the family in devotions. He opens up this book, writing the whole gospel story. He reads the page and holds it up for all of us to see. All the way through communion. And then he opened it up for questions. <laughs> He's a true grandson of an apologist. So my wife said to him, why the bread? I said, Nana, because the broken body of Jesus. What about the cup? It's the shed blood of Jesus. Why? For your sin and my sin. It's a five-year-old boy. He's explaining history. As long as you do it now, you proclaim the Lord's death in the past until he come in the future. Ladies and gentlemen, this may be a terrifying moment, but it is our moment. We must engage. We must be there. I can tell you, I've been in this globe trotting around for 45 years. I've done it. A few weeks ago, we were at University of Michigan. They rented a 3,500-seater auditorium packed. Next day, Michigan State, 9,500-seater auditorium packed. The Michigan-Michigan State game was on that night and they lost the crowd because they were attending this open forum. You tell me they're not hungry? You see, there are two prevalent moods on our educational campuses today. Hostility and emptiness. You blunt the hostility with the method you use. You speak to the emptiness with the message you have. The methodology and the message go hand in hand together. You disarm the hostility till they drop their weapons down and they're willing to listen. And you bring that precious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that bridges the head to the heart and they honestly look at you in a dazed sense. I never knew that it made so much sense. Let me shift gears. Some of you may have heard me tell this story. Years ago, I was in Beirut, Lebanon. It was in the 80s. My wife and I were there, and it was a time where things were deadly out there. Bullet holes, shell marks, all over the buildings. We sometimes, sometimes I had to take a boat from Cyprus because the airports were closed and come into Junia in an overnight trip. So I'm here with my friend Sammy Dagger, who's Yehai, built like a teddy bear, but his voice and enthusiasm is inversely proportional to his size. He spends more energy saying good morning than most of us would do in a whole message. How are you, my brother? That's the way he talks, you know. So I'm driving with Sammy to Sidon in his van that moves more by prayer than any mechanical constituent parts under the hood. And a bumper sticker at the back, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Going through Palestinian territory. I said, I don't know why I came here, but probably to be buried in the Bekaa Valley. <laughs> so we're chugging along with Sammy and he's waxing eloquent. It takes him a moment for me to tell him we're being blocked. There are Syrian soldiers blocking the road with their guns at us. 
Oh, yes, I see that, he says. He lowers the window. And the Syrian soldiers come on both sides. They tell me to lower my window. The barrel of that gun is now at us. I said, that's it. I'm gone. They look at him and say, do you have any explosives in this van? Any dynamite? He says, yes. <laughs> this van is full of explosives. And there's a tarp over the roof. And he puts his hand out. Meanwhile, these two barrels are staring at us, you know. He takes out a gospel of John and he says, here's the dynamite. He says, it's not the kind that will hurt you. They figured they'd had enough of him. So they looked at me and said, Hindu, which is Arabic for Indian. At that point, I was willing to say I was anything. I said, say, yeah, 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 yeah. Indian. The guy steps back, salutes me and says, Indira Gandhi Mubarak which means give Indira Gandhi my greetings, as if I played marbles with Indira Gandhi, you know. I said, I'd be delighted to take your greetings back to Indira Gandhi. And then he moved us all and waved us on. Sammy drives about 10 yards till the soldiers clear out and he stops. I said, why are you stopping? Let's go. He said, Brother Ravi, I want to tell you something. He said, for years and years and years, I was praying that God would give me the opportunity to take the gospel to Syria. He said, and now I'm so angry that 50,000 Syrian soldiers are in my country taking over. So I got on my knees the other night and I said, God, what are you trying to do? Send 50,000 Syrians over here. And he said, Sammy, all these years you've been asking me to open the doors in Syria for you to preach the gospel since they won't let you in, I've sent 50,000 Syrians to you and you're still angry with me. <laughs> this is hard. This is hard. Because preserving a culture is very critical. I'm all in favor of that. Preserving the values of a culture are indispensable to the future. I'm all for that. But if history has landed in your lap and mine, people to whom we could never get that God has brought over here from all over the world today. You and I can reach the world without leaving the borders of the United States. God is moving in all of history and Jesus is the central figure. He is sovereign. I weep over the fact that a great city like Damascus is so shredded right now. One of the most ancient cities of the world. I've been there many, many, many times and love the response we've had. But those doors are shut for some time, but the people are not. There are people we have access to, ladies and gentlemen. He's brought them here from many parts of the world. I look at my own fellow countrymen of India who would never have attended meetings there. I get letters from my former professors, from my former classmates, people who never knew anything about the gospel, who phone the office and say, are you the Ravi Zacharias we knew in Delhi? And I get that opportunity. One of my buddies works at the White House. He's an intelligence type guy with high tech. He flew all the way to Toronto. We grew up playing cricket together. He went to visit my sister and he said, I listen to Ravi on the radio all of the time. What's happened to him? my sister had the opportunity of telling this man the gospel of Jesus Christ. He would never have done that back home. 
finger of God in all of history. Christ as a central figure. Secondly and quickly, the harnessing of an arena of persecution into a platform of opportunity. The harnessing of an arena of persecution into a platform of opportunity. They turned their trials into triumphs. They turned their pain into passion. They turned their assaults into an advantage. They took everything that the world had hurled against them to minimize their belief and leveraged it to advantage. Greek was a foreign language to them, they used it. The Roman road was a foreign road to them, they used it. Between the language and the road, they began to conquer the known world of their time. I had the privilege yesterday of meeting with a couple present here and a dear lady has had a terrible nerve cancer of the face. Battled it now for over a decade here in the audience, doctor and wife. Just before I left, she gives me a CD of her piano music. She's playing to the glory of God. You know, it would be very easy to curl up in bed and say, why this? Instead, she looks at her hands and says, why not this? Annie Johnston Flint had cancer, rheumatoid arthritis. She was orphaned. She was incontinent. She spent most of her life in diapers in the last 14 years in bed with ulcers covering her body head to toe. She wrote the most beautiful hymns you could ever read. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the days half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundaries known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. An eyewitness said the last time he saw her, she needed eight or 14 pillows, I forget what, that had to cushion her body because of all the sores. She was still writing, still writing, still writing hymns. Turn an arena of pain into a platform of opportunity. That's what we heard in the testimonies tonight, didn't we? Darkness loomed, devastation on the horizon till Christ breaks in. We should not be surprised. You see, this is critical that we understand it. I want you to listen to me very carefully and give me your undivided attention. The Bible tell us that tells us he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. He led captivity capture, captive. He captured captivity and unleashed the gifts that could change the world. James Stewart of Scotland says this, it is a glorious phrase that he led captivity captive. The very triumphs of his foes, it means he used for their defeat. He compelled their dark achievements to subserve his ends, not theirs. They nailed him to the tree, not knowing by that very act they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing that he would make it a throne. 
They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing in that very moment they were lifting up all the gates of the universe to let the king of glory come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were implanting imperishably in the hearts of men, the very name they intended to destroy. They thought they had God with his back to the wall, pinned and helpless and defeated. They did not know it was God himself who had tracked them down to that spot. He did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. He did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. Through evil, through pain, through suffering, the captain of our salvation refines us. The Bible says, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what had been promised who shut the mouths of lions and quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were carried and chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made complete and made perfect. It's our turn now to run the race, to complete the story and fulfill what God has called you to. You know, about three weeks ago, two of my colleagues here, myself and one other, we were in Malaysia. We received a message just before I left Seoul to go there that our lives were in danger. I won't go into the details. And more specifics were given. And I told the boys before we left, and they took it to heart, did that keep us from going? No. We took precautions. We didn't eat out. We ate in the hotel and all of that. And I was telling the organizer, you know, we got this message just before we came here. I said, we got this message. The organizer's wife looked at me and said, what would you have done if you'd received it before you came here? I said, we did. I said, before I took off, before we left, the message came through my wife and my daughter. We're dangerous, we're in dangerous times. We're in dangerous times. If I told you all the threats that I face, and all the slanders that people like to make and all the falsehoods they like to spread. I say to myself, why do we have to live like this? And then I look at my Lord. He wasn't spared any of this. He wasn't spared any of this. Ladies and gentlemen, let us transform a platform of pain and persecution into an arena of opportunity. My time's almost gone, so I will close with my third and final thought. It is this, the priority of a person over merely a methodology. What God intends for you and me is to use us individually. We may have different methods. Many of you support different ministries because God has laid that on your heart. 
and those methods will be honored because it's being carried by honorable people and being supported by honorable people. God use a, multi use a multiplicity of ways and people in order to get his work done. I have been in parts of the world where I've been speaking to illiterate people in the villages of India. And by the time they hug you and embrace you and tell you how much you mean to them and then you move on from there and go and speak in Delhi University or something with the intellectuals and I say to myself, two different worlds, both part of God's world, both real and the heart of the lost is in the heart of his son who leaves the 99 to go and reach one. You know, when you look at Billy Graham, who will turn 99 this year in November, I asked myself this question, what an amazing life. Somebody asked him, what are you gonna say when you get to heaven? Because there are so many better people, greater preachers than you, but God has used you better than many of the others. He said, when I get to heaven, that's gonna be my first question, why? Why me? God trusted him. See, Moses didn't open a Bush University. <laughs> Joseph didn't go around writing a book on how to inter interpret 50 dreams, typically. Samson didn't go around signing jawbones of a donkey. And when you think about it, David didn't issue slings to his whole army. Each one of these people was unique and distinctive and God had used in a powerful way. So my challenge to you tonight is simply this. What does he want from you today? What does he want from me today? How can I respond to the tug of his Holy Spirit? Giving, yes, but giving yourself has to be prior to anything else. Giving your heart him. Finger of God in all of history and Christ as its central figure. The transforming of an arena of persecution into a platform of opportunity. And the priority of a person over methodology. When I came to Christ at the age of 17 on a bed of suicide, I never dreamed of the life that he had ahead for me. Today as our ministry looks at 71 apologists placed in 15 countries, I go to bed at night many a time now and I say, Lord, maybe my work's done. Maybe my work is done. But I will keep doing this as long as there is breath in my body. I will not stop. I will build and train apologists for the future. If you're working with the destitute, working in crisis pregnancy centers, if you're working with the needy, wherever you are, do it with your whole might because that's what God has burdened your heart with and you fulfill your calling. So I walked out of that hospital bed at the age of 17 with just this simple commitment, use me, please use me. And I got my first doctorate my dad was sitting in the front pew. My wife was there. My dad had discouraged me all the time. He didn't talk to me for five weeks after my conversion. He said, I've given you all this education. You're going to waste it becoming a preacher. 
When that first doctorate was given, he was sitting in the front pew. There at, at Horton Raspberry, I forget which of the two it was then, with my hood that he had bought a replica of sitting on his lap. And he just raised his head towards the heavens the whole time I spoke. He became a changed man. He believed God could do a miracle in an individual life and that my heavenly father saw what my earthly father had not seen. He became a godly man. If you will only believe what God can do through you, you'll become a changed person. It was Malcolm Muggridge who said this and I close with these words. He said, we look back upon history and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulated and wealth dispersed. Shakespeare has spoken of the rise and fall of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. I look upon my own fellow countrymen in England, once upon a time dominating a quarter of the world, most of them convinced in the words of what is still a popular song that the God who made the mighty shall make them mightier yet. I've heard a crazed, cracked Austrian announce to the world the establishment of a Reich that would last a thousand years. I've seen an Italian clown saying he was going to stop and restart the calendar with his own ascension to power. I've heard a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world as a wiser than Solomon, more humane than Marcus Aurelius, more enlightened than Ashoka. I have seen America wealthy and in terms of military weaponry more powerful than the rest of the world put together so that had the American people so desired, they could have outdone a Caesar or an Alexander in the range and scale of their conquests. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone. Gone with the wind. England, part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped found and dominate for some three decades. America haunted by fears of running out of those precious fluids that keeps some motorways roaring in the smog, settling with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and the victory of the Don Quixotes of the media as they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime, all gone. So behind the debris of these solemn supermen, and self-styled imperial diplomatists stands the gigantic figure of one person because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone mankind might still have peace, the person of Jesus Christ. That's the rock of our salvation. That's the foundation of our belief. It is he whose name we proclaim and him that we live for. Do it, do it to the glory of God who reigns over time past, present, and future. This is our moment. The day will come where we can lay our crowns down at his feet. And we will see you there for sure someday. God bless you.